and welcome to Linux Action News, our weekly take on Linux and the open source world. This is episode 93, recorded on February 17th, 2019. I'm Chris. And I'm Joe. Hello, Joe. It's good to be connected with you. And I'm looking over the news this week, and I say we start with the story we all saw coming, especially if you followed the Google news recently and maybe even got yourself one of those Google Home Hubs. You knew this was coming. Yeah, Android Things is no longer going to be about actual Internet of Things. It's going to pivot to be more about smart speakers and displays, which I suppose technically are Internet of Things devices, but not exactly what we thought when Google announced this. (laughs) No, no. If you remember, I think it was 2015's I.O., where Google announced the Android of Things platform, a versatile embedded and open source operating system designed to run on low power and low memory systems. Now, today, it's essentially still that same operating system, but with a particular focus. Google announced they're going to transform the Android of Things from a public developer platform to a, quote, platform for their OEM partners, end quote, to develop things like smart speakers and smart displays. As a result, moving forward, it won't support production systems on modules, which the industry calls SOMs, which are very common systems that are based around a Qualcomm chipset or maybe a MediaTek hardware, it won't support those. Instead, it's more for custom development systems, for custom smart screens and custom smart speakers, which is really another way of saying it's a dedicated OS for the Google Assistant. Yeah, although they are going to keep supporting the Raspberry Pi, which I think is just a safe face more than anything. This feels like half an announcement because there is the whole, like, all the other devices in the entire IoT ecosystem that don't have an operating system answer that we don't have right now. If you just got one of those Google Home Hubs with a 7-inch screen and a nice, huge white bezel, uh, I picked one up. I wanted to try it out. That's running the Chromecast OS, which is originally based on Gentoo. That's what's on these devices. These these newer devices aren't even using Android things. They're using Google's Chromecast platform. And I think it might not only just be a comment on their long-term commitment to Android, but perhaps it's an admission that if if you're working with this kind of constrained environment, a more closer-to-the-metal platform is appropriate. Well, yeah, instead of Android, which is just huge and bloated, why not use proper GNU slash Linux? which is essentially what they're going to go for, or even something completely different like Fuchsia, which we think of as a phone OS, but might well end up being more suited to Internet of Things devices. Perhaps it's like there is some looming announcement just in the near future that we're waiting for. Yeah, it does very much feel like that, and it's something we're definitely going to have to keep an eye on. And something that I've been keeping an eye on for a while now are these Windows 10 ARM laptops, And from the moment they were announced, I wondered, will you be able to run proper Linux on them? And it turns out that, at least on some of them now, you can, with a bit of an asterisk. Right, so we're talking three machines, essentially, right now. The uh, Asus Novago, the HP MV-X2, and the Lenovo Meeks? Mix? 630? How do you say that one? Meeks, I think. Meeks? Okay. Yeah, so you've you've got, like, three systems right now. And then in there, there's a couple of different sets of supported hardware. It's a little touch and go. For example, as of February 19th, none of the computers support the following features when you're running Ubuntu. Um, Wi-Fi, hardware accelerated graphics, 
or access to onboard storage. So it's early days right now. But the folks behind the ARCH64 laptops open source project on GitHub have come up with a way to install Ubuntu 18.04 LTS on some of these Windows 10 ARM laptops. And big picture, this is very important. Just like you want to know if you can go into a store and maybe pick up a couple of different x86 laptops that can run Linux, you want to make sure that you can pick up a couple of different ARM laptops. You know, this reminds me of the whole kerfuffle about secure boot. And when that first was introduced and everyone was panicking, oh, you're not going to be able to run Linux on laptops anymore. And now as Microsoft kind of moves over to ARM for their consumer devices, that was my first thought. Oh, are we going to be able to run Linux on them? And that's why I think this is important. It's very early, as you said, and they're not particularly useful at the moment. But the fact that we are actually, as a Linux community, making some strides to make Linux work on them, I think that's a real important step and a really important thing. I cannot agree more with any of that. I, I, I feel like we, we got really, really, really close where you could buy a, a ThinkPad laptop and for the most part you would be able to run Linux on it. You could go into a store and you could buy a Dell laptop if they sell them there and for the most part you could run Linux on it or even an HP laptop. Yeah, I was going to say even the cheap ones. You, you can just go into a computer store and if it's only Intel graphics, the chances are maybe the Wi-Fi card might not work but otherwise it's going to work fine. Right. That was it. It was once everything kind of got standardized around the Intel stuff, you had a pretty good shot that Linux was going to work just fine on it. And it was going to just be the edge cases around the video and maybe the Wi-Fi. And we sort of hit the reset button with these ARM machines. And there's a lot of compelling market reasons to go with ARM. Most consumers don't need the power that an i5, an i7, or maybe even an i3 processor brings them. Most consumers are perfectly happy just browsing the web with something that an ARM processor can provide and also bring them maybe 10 hours of battery life. Yeah, but as ever, Windows is inevitably going to come with Windows problems. And to have that lifeboat of being able to install Linux on it, I think is great. And it potentially brings people into our community in the first place. How often have people thought that their machine was broken because Windows had slowed down to the point where it was unusable and then you install Ubuntu or Mint or whatever, Fedora on there, and suddenly they feel like they've got a new laptop. And I'm sure that a lot of people listening to this have converted people. Whereas if they've got these ARM machines that it up until now has been impossible to install Linux on, then they're just stuck with Windows. Right. And as the IT guy for the whole family, basically, I, I love the idea of having a few solid vendors to recommend. Like, hey, when you go to Costco, why don't you pick up the HP MVX3 or 5 or whatever it is, at, you know, some point in the future. Go grab that machine. And the next time I'm out there, I'll load Ubuntu Mate on there and you'll have a perfectly fast, secure environment where you can go browse Facebook or you can go browse Twitter and go be vain or whatever it is. I, like at the the end of the day, I just I love the the possibilities here because there's such a great argument to be made for ARM on a laptop like this for people that don't need to edit video or whatever it might be. They they just simply need a system that can browse the web, have great battery life, and run a secure operating system. And that's the that's the number one argument I go to my family with for a system like this is I can get you something that runs great, runs all the things you need. And in the past, it was maybe Firefox. And I'd, I'd, I'd say, well, we're going to switch it to LibreOffice, or maybe you can use Google Docs or even Office 365. But those things are beginning to shift now. Now it's, well, yeah, you can 
totally Facebook still. Yeah, Twitter, Instagram, you can go read all of those things or go view all of those things on this Linux system. In a big way, it's the argument we used to have in the past. Get people on Windows to run open source applications like Firefox, like LibreOffice or GIMP. And then when they make that migration, they make that switch to Linux, when they choose Linux, these applications they'll end up using will be the exact applications they were using on Windows. All of this is in play now, but it's at the hardware level. It's at something they can go buy at the Best Buy or whatever local electronic store. I think it's a it's a great continuation of that perfect value for Linux. And, and maybe, at least for people like me who do tech support, once they get Wi-Fi, once they get Bluetooth, it'll be the perfect solution. Nice subliminal message in there with the Choose Linux plug. Well done. But um, people will definitely be screaming at their headphones, but what about Chrome OS? Well, Chrome OS is basically what you've described there, but it's got the proprietary Google stuff in it. And wouldn't it be nicer for people to have something that performs as well as Chrome OS on an ARM device, but that is proper GNU slash Linux and respects their freedom? It's capitalism, Joe. It's capitalism. You've you've got all of these companies out there, Dell, HP, et cetera, et cetera, Asus, that they, they still want to make products and they still want to sell them to consumers. They need something to power that. And Chrome OS will get a niche, a niche of their of their base, but they need to sell to more people than that. And I think that's where this has a much larger role. Well, that's all for the future, but if you're stuck on Windows right now, then you might well be using the Windows subsystem for Linux. And if you are, then you should definitely, definitely not disable your antivirus. At least according to a Microsoft developer who is involved in their antivirus program, which they have invested a lot of time and money into. I, I have to be honest, if I'm ever on a Windows system, I do not run antivirus. <laughs> maybe, <laughs> maybe on Windows 10 I do because it's turned on by default, it sounds like. But people are looking for a solution to the disk I.O. issues with the Windows subsystem. The main performance shortcoming for the Windows subsystem for Linux has been in the area of disk I.O. The CPU and system benchmarks that Pharonix has done routinely show us that the Windows 10 subsystem for Linux with Ubuntu and other distributions does actually perform quite well. But when it comes to the area of disk writes and reads, it is dramatically slower than the bare metal Linux installations that Michael compares it to. Disabling the Windows Defender or other antivirus systems that might be on your Windows box kind of fixes it, but it's not a 100% fix. Well, I've seen reports of up to five times the disk I.O. performance just by disabling antivirus. But I've also seen reports of NPM dependencies being flagged as malware, which I assume are correct. So I'm, I'm conflicted about what I would advise someone on this. Yeah, and I find this whole story really interesting because it's exposing a fundamental flaw with the Windows subsystem for Linux, and that is the Windows Disk I.O. system. It's horribly slow. And the fact that the Windows Defender impacts that even a little bit is pretty remarkable here. Because if you zoom out and read what the story is, it is Microsoft warning you dear user of Windows, that open source is so dangerous. You could have installed something from maybe the Node.js repository that would have given you some malware. It would have tried to mine some Monero. 
and it is so dangerous that you need to run the Windows subsystem for Linux. We make Linux safer. Even if it makes it 10 to 15% slower, we make Linux safer. In fact, Rich Turner of Microsoft issued a fresh warning on not disabling Windows Defender, even for the Windows subsystem for Linux. In fact, he pleads with you not to exclude your Linux directories because as of the I.O. performance coming short, Rich says we're working across several teams right now to figure out an effective solution for the performance issue, despite the performance impact. In the meantime, we recommend patience. So, uh, despite the performance impact, they're working on the performance impact. Just need patience, Joe. Just need patience. But you can't trust the open source software. Anyone can write stuff for it, and, and anyone can read it as well. Oh, definitely you don't want to trust that. It does feel like old Microsoft, this, doesn't it? And, you know, we said before that Microsoft is not one thing. It is a big umbrella of many different departments. And there are tons of people working over there who really believe in software freedom or at least open source, And even if that's just for the pragmatic reasons. But then there are clearly some people who are of their old opinion who believe that the proprietary way of doing things is better. And... I've never, ever once used antivirus on Linux. Supposedly, it's good to use if you interact with people on Windows and you don't want to kind of forward Windows malware onto them. But I think if you're running Windows and your malware detection doesn't catch it, well, that's your fault, not mine. I don't know. Is, that, is it too much ivory tower thinking of, of me there to not worry about malware protection on Linux? My response to that is it, it's a big old, it depends. Like if you're, if you're working on your workstation where you're developing your application, that's one thing. If you're deploying on a server, um, that's a whole other thing. Like there's a place for anti-malware on a server, but you better not be depending on a Windows Defender to protect your server. Uh, one thing that I did note in these release notes here is that they've enabled now the ability to browse your Windows subsystem for Linux file system from Explorer. Essentially, you fire up Bash, you go to the directory that you want to browse, and then you launch explorer.exe in that directory. That's not the interesting part. The interesting part is how Microsoft is pulling this magic trick off. They're using the 9P protocol. You know, I know what you're thinking. The ni- Chris, what's the, what's the 9P protocol? It's a network protocol developed for the Plan 9 system from Bell Labs <laughs> way, way back in the day. And they're using that now to facilitate file requests from Windows to the Linux subsystem. They say they've modified the Windows subsystem for Linux init daemon to include the 9P server. The server contains protocols that support the Linux metadata, including permissions which is not a one-to-one translation to what Windows NTFS permissions are. There is a Windows service and a driver that acts as a client and talks to the 9P server, which is running as its own Windows subsystem for Linux instance. The client and server communicate over AF Unix sockets, and since Windows subsystem for Linux allows interops between a Windows application and a Linux application using AF Unix sockets, it all works. As of right now, the files are only accessible when the distro is running, so you have to have the Windows subsystem for Linux up and going, and accessing the Linux files is treated as the same as accessing a network resource. So it's a it's the same sl- backslash backslash Windows subsystem for Linux, so it's WSL dollar sign, 
Ubuntu or whatever the name of your system is, and then you get into the file system. So any limitations or rules for when you're accessing a network file system in Explorer will apply to accessing the Windows subsystem for Linux files. So there's some trade-offs there, but it's, it's pretty cool. You know, reading about all of this made me think that the subsystem is either this amazingly architected and put-together system, or it is the biggest, ugliest hack in history. <laughs> either way, it shows you that the Windows disk I.O. system is not nearly as cool as Linux. Yep, we know that much. Well, enough Microsoft talk. Let's get down to some serious enterprise Linux. And Red Hat Satellite is going to standardize on Postgres and, unsurprisingly, drop MongoDB. This is a fascinating story from a lot of different angles. But when you look at it, it's been in motion since mid-2016. In, in mid-2016, in fact, uh, around September there is an upstream change with the Pulp project, which is really kind of responsible for the repository management aspects of uh, Red Hat Enterprise Linux and the whole satellite server. In, in 2016, on September 13th, they're on their mailing list, they're writing about moving their backend from MongoDB to Postgres. So Red Hat's known this is coming since September of 2016. Now, I, I believe this accelerated in January when Red Hat began to distance themselves from the MongoDB project. On their blog, they continue to say the reasons for the directions that we are going is we feel that Postgres is a better solution for the types of data and the usage that satellite requires. Well, you know, that's very true. And in the past, they were kind of using a mixed scenario. When I originally deployed Red Hat Satellite, it was, I believe if memory serves, using the Oracle database. <laughs> so that was, a, I mean, that was a really long time ago. And, and now they've kind of been in this hybrid situation where there's some Postgres and there's some MongoDB. But with Pulp going over to Postgres, it, it just seems like Red Hat didn't really have any choice. And they eventually were going to have to make this change. And the MongoDB relicensing just sort of facilitated the need here. Yeah, so it's not black and white here. It's not just because of that change to the server-side public license. There are strong technical reasons for this, but it was probably something that may have taken a bit longer if it weren't for that move and it weren't for them basically having to drop MongoDB. Yeah, I think that's basically it. But this is all in the context of Amazon launching AWS DocumentDB and DigitalOcean launching their own fully managed hosted Postgres. Yeah, it's not a great time for MongoDB anymore, is it? It seems that Postgres is winning. Now, DigitalOcean, they're not quite up there with AWS and Azure and Google Cloud, but they certainly want to be, don't they? And introducing something like this really puts a stake in the ground as saying we are a serious player in this cloud market. We're not just $5 droplets for people wanting to mess around with NextCloud. No, they're pitching this as a totally managed database solution, not a Postgres database solution, but managed database. Now, they say they're starting with Postgres, but managed database enables developers of all skill levels to quickly and easily spin up a performance database cluster. And I like this hook here. Get ready for this. Best of all, you don't need to know anything about Linux or specific DevOps maintenance tasks. And now apparently they're in a position now where they can sell entire hosted database services that are hassle-free. And they write, a significant advantage to a managed database is saving time. 
lots of time. You can quickly deploy a database, and we'll handle the rest. Never worry again about security patches to the OS or the database engine. Once a new version or a patch is available, simply click a button and enable it. I don't know, Joe. The old sysadmin in me is um, dying a little bit today. Well, we had a big discussion about this on Late Night Linux a couple of episodes ago, and I came to the conclusion that it can be a good thing to use managed databases and effectively lock yourself into certain cloud providers as long as you're not completely dependent on them. And I think that for DigitalOcean to grow and to continue to compete in the market, they have to do stuff like this. I, I kind of think it's a positive overall for open source because uh, DigitalOcean writes about adding Redis and MySQL down the road. And um, that is great because we're not talking about like uh, the DigitalOcean database service, right? We're talking about Postgres. We're talking about Redis. So this is this is like move your data anywhere kind of stuff. And this is where the cloud needs to go. And I, I, I hope that it pushes Azure and it pushes AWS to stay mainline as much as possible with upstream open source projects. Because data portability, I think, is going to be the absolute key when people move all of their workloads to the cloud. And DigitalOcean is essentially just offering a fully managed Postgres or MySQL installation where they do the patches, they do the upgrades, they provide all the backend stuff, but you're just using standard stuff here as a developer. And I think that is the way to do it. Well, I'd be surprised if Redis does actually make it onto DigitalOcean because they've made similar license changes, although it's not quite as egregious as what MongoDB have done. But I don't know, maybe something like MariaDB might be more likely. But we'll see. From the local section of the news this week, there is some warnings for Void Linux users. Void is no longer in control of the voidlinux.eu domain. Well, this isn't a huge surprise, is it, given that Back in May last year, the original founder of Void went AWOL and presumably took this domain with him. And much like Solus have done, they've had to switch their domain over. Now they've gone for voidlinux.org, which kind of makes more sense as a domain to me. Yeah, absolutely. And they write on this uh, really brief post on their website, they write, at this time, please assume that anything involving voidlinux.eu is not related to Void Linux and should be considered potentially malicious. Well, when I read that, I had to I had to go browse. I had to go, I had to go see what it was, Joe. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> so I, I popped in the old browser. I did a private session because I'm a gentleman, and uh, it's just a domain squatting page. It's nothing right now. Yeah, I was looking for something interesting, but yeah, as you say, someone's bought it, and it's just like coming soon, sort of thing. So stand by, and maybe maybe they'll find it within their hearts to donate it to the Void Linux project. Wouldn't that be nice? Well, you never know. Maybe a philanthropist has bought it and is gonna give it back to them, but it seems unlikely to me. So in the meantime, yeah, make sure that it's voidlinux.org. But it does just go to show that with these smaller projects that don't have the governance in place, you can get these serious problems. And we talked about it last year, but it just turns me off using these smaller distros, and it shouldn't do. And, you know, how are you going to get another big distro if you don't start out small? But I don't know, I'd just stick to... Ubuntu, Fedora, Debian, Arch even, you know, well-established projects. No, I completely follow. I, you know, it's, it's a tough thing because you want to recommend something to start with when people are trying out Linux and you feel responsible for that recommendation and it is getting harder and harder to recommend those quote-unquote homegrown boutique Linux distros. 
even though sometimes that's where the coolest innovation is happening, like the neatest thing that's solving that edge case problem happens at those boutique distro levels. And you you want to see that continue. At the same time, you don't want to see a repeat of Corora or Void Linux or Solus. It's kind of getting to the point where I feel like the safest recommendation is mainstream Linux. I recommend big Linux now, Joe, <laughs> if there is such a thing. Yeah, which is a shame because, as you say, things like Void Linux are actually doing something technically very different from the big distros. But do you recommend them to people? I don't know. The kind of people who you would recommend them to probably are not going to have a problem migrating off them. You're not going to recommend Void Linux to your grandma, are you? Whereas putting Fedora or Ubuntu on there, or even Debian, or even something like Manjaro or something, you could imagine, but not something like super technical like Void Linux. So it's probably not that much of a problem, but it's still something to consider. And while there is a Linux for the rest of us, there's also now a cryptocurrency uh, for the rest of us, I guess, at least according to JP Morgan. Yeah, JPM coin, which is not a cryptocurrency as we know it. It's not traded openly. It's what they call a stable coin. So it is backed by JP Morgan to be equivalent to the US dollar at all times. So it's not going to fluctuate in value. And it's not even open to their standard customers it's a few of their corporate customers so it's not quite as big a deal as some people are making it but it is nevertheless a huge financial institution getting on board with both blockchain and digital payment technology and it's them dipping their toe in the water but it's still it's kind of like you know one small toe dipped in the water one giant leap for the industry yeah i mean it is facilitating between institution transfers so jp morgan chase is developing a new cryptocurrency called the jpm coin whose value will be tied specifically to the us dollar and the new cryptocurrency is built on top of the quorum blockchain technology which is a variant or in other words a fork of ethereum which has been modified to serve the needs of big banks like J.P. Morgan. Specifically, Ethereum's network throughput is limited to roughly 15 to 20 transactions per second, but Quorum improves on that by at least, as they say, an order of magnitude, comfortably handling hundreds of transactions per second. And you have to wonder, what's this really about? It, because it's not a public blockchain, so you lose some of the value there. And that's really the big question is how valuable is this without a public ledger? But at the same time, you do gain a mathematically reliable way to transfer funds. So there is some value here. We just don't really know how far this is going to go. But it is totally a new breed of cryptocurrency, which is stable because it's pegged to the dollar and backed by a massive financial institution. I think we all knew it was going to go this way. Um, but now we actually have it. Well, I, for one, welcome this because if it means that uh, when I get paid by an American company, that payment happens immediately rather than having to wait a day or so for all of the legacy systems to catch up with the fact that a number needs to be subtracted from one bank account and added to another one, then just I welcome this. These big banks need to embrace this technology and get out of the 20th century and into the 21st century and make payments actually 
work instantaneously rather than going through all this clearing. No kidding. I completely agree. And if you strip away all the hype around blockchain and and Bitcoin and all of that, and you just say cryptographically verifiable transactions that can be ledged in a way that is audible by other parties, that's a sellable idea. Like you take away all the other stuff around cryptocurrency and you just focus on that aspect of it. Banks are going to love that. Oh, and they also love the fact they didn't have to actually R&D the whole thing. They can just go fork some some open source project and they can get running. I mean, this would have taken them 20 years to develop. And they've they've done this in, you know, a matter of no time. So we'll see where it goes. My sense is it starts small as, you know, in little, little, and when I say little, it could be millions of dollars, but transactions between institutions, transferring funds, and then it just grows from there over time. Yeah, I don't think that everyone's going to be using this for mainstream banks this year. It's probably five years out, maybe more than that. But it's the foundation for these old institutions embracing what's essentially just a new database technology. However, I, I want to caution something in the audience. It's it's pretty easy to get blasé about this and sort of gloss over blockchain news. And it's it's easy to kind of just tune this all out. But if you zoom out and look at the big picture here, what we are talking about is open source fundamentally affecting the way that massive international financial institutions transfer money around the world. And that's going to be influenced by open source software. Open source is touching every aspect of our lives these days. As it should, because apart from the deep social and political reasons for using free software and open source, it's just fundamentally a better way to do things. And time and time again, we're seeing pragmatic uses of open source. As that world evolves and changes, we will cover it every single week. Go to linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe for all the ways to get new episodes. And go to linuxactionnews.com slash contact for ways to get in touch with us. Also, if you're well-networked in the open source world, Linux Academy is hiring an instructor recruiter, somebody to help us grow our training architect team from around 30 to over 100. We need somebody that can find the best in open source because that's what our students expect. Go to linuxacademy.com careers if that's you. We'll be back next Monday with our weekly take on the latest Linux and open source news. I'm at Chris LAS. I'm at Joe Ressington. Thank you for joining us, and we will see you next week. See you later. Thank you.